Hey guys, welcome to the Lash Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Kaur, and I'm a lash artist just like you. I've spent eight years as a lash artist, but I've been in the beauty business since I was 16 years old. Things are changing all the time in the beauty biz, and I believe the more you allow yourself to be a student, the further you'll grow. Each week, we bring you actionable tips to move the needle forward and elevate your lash business. Think of the Lash Pro Podcast as the business school classes that didn't come with your lash training. Let's dive in. Okay, this week's episode is insane. If you don't know Cheryl, you're obviously living under a rock because she's disrupting the industry with untamed artistry, rolling out the most beautiful pre-mades and constantly giving away hours and hours of free lash education. Like it's insane, but it's the most amazing thing. Seriously, Cheryl is so incredibly generous with her time and such a beautiful soul to chat with. We didn't realize how much time we actually spent recording, so we had to split this into a two-part episode. It was almost three parts. In part one, Cheryl shares her journey growing up as an immigrant, dropping out of university to become a pro poker player before landing into the lash industry as a business owner. We chat about how to successfully and consistently sell yourself and techniques that you can implement to show up better even if you're feeling extremely intimidated by the idea of public speaking or Instagram lives and would rather be doing anything else. We teach you how to come across clearer in your stories and captions and what it takes to be a good educator and also why retention is so mysterious and why so many new lash artists struggle with adhesive. Then in part two, we speed around the most common retention issues and plus some lash beauty myths. You don't want to miss either one of these. Don't forget to take a moment to share this episode with a friend that would love to elevate their beauty business. Subscribe to the show. And if this episode helps you, leave us a review on iTunes. Hi, Cheryl. How are you? Hi. As if we haven't been talking for 20 minutes already. <laughs> I know. Hi. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. We're super, super excited to start talking to you and diving into retention and adhesive and all the ish that drives us crazy. Before we get into it all and get into the meat and potatoes of it all, I want to know, like, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what was your life like before lashing and before untamed artistry? And like, how did you get into it all? Oh, wow. Okay. We're going far back. So you see, 1991, an Asian child was born. The but, 91 um, baby. Yeah, I am. Well, so I was born and raised in China and I came to Canada when I was 14 years old and I was raised by my grandma in China. And then when I came to Canada, I guess like it was a really big culture shock for me, changing from the environment that I lived in to now, which is a complete different environment. But after that, I did the normal things, went to school, went to university, but I dropped out because I realized that going to university wasn't something that I I really wanted to do, was something that I wanted to do to please others like my mother and the society. But I discovered poker in my second year of university. So when I discovered poker, then everything was game over after that. Because once I discovered poker, I realized that there was this one thing out there that I really, really like doing. And that involves everything that I enjoy doing, which is fast decision-making, risk calculation, and people, most of all. It's because when you sit on a table playing with eight other people, there's a lot of characters there. And you learn a lot about different type of people, different type of behavior. So it combined everything I liked in one. And at the time, I went to the casino, I think the second time to play poker. And I met a guy who played poker for a living. And I just thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. (laughs) 
well, I don't know. Like, it's just this crazy idea that I just had that I'm just like, oh, if you can do it, I can do it. Um, soon after that, I started playing poker a lot more. And then within a year, I dropped out of university and moved on to play poker for a living professionally for the next like five years. And it was definitely a career that I think is very unique. And you probably won't experience it that much in life, which is same as being a lash artist too, if you really think about it. It's not an avocation that a lot of people have. But then after that, I think I hit a point where I was very unfulfilled, very, very unhappy, even though I think through social media, and if you follow along my poker journey, you would think that I was having such a time in my life. I was slowly climbing my rank to become one of the best poker player, uh, female poker player in the world, which is something I really, really wanted to do. And I set a goal for myself to do. But it's like the higher the stake I play, the more and more unhappy I got. And eventually, I think I got to a point where now looking back in hindsight, I was definitely depressed, but you don't know it when you're in the moment. But now you think about like, oh, spending like 14 hours a day in bed watching TV on days that I'm not playing poker, it's probably not normal. <laughs> and what really hit hard for me is when I started realizing that all the traveling um, to other people, it's like, oh, wow, she's traveling around the world all the time and living in hotels. But to me, it's what it meant was having no friends, not building real relationship because you're not in the same place long enough to build a meaningful relationship with people. So eventually I decided that I wanted to do something else. How close did you get to being like one of the top female professional poker players in the world? I think that the metrics itself is very um, subjective. So it's there's no objective truth in whether or not you're the best poker player in the world, besides using some of the metrics like money earned, tournament earned, uh, tournament win. However, in poker, there's a lot of luck involved, um, yeah. what we call the variance. So I think it's going to be really hard to determine that. So I wouldn't say that I was that close, but I would say that my best day in poker was when I was playing in one of the biggest tournaments that I've ever played in my life with some of the best poker player there is in the world. And then that evening when we had a player's party, which the company usually will host some sort of player's party. And a friend of mine who went to this tournament with me was basically walking around, having drinks, meeting people, socializing. And he overheard people talking about me, some of the best poker player in the world talking about how today I play with a girl who's probably one of the best like female player that I play with. Like she's really, really tough. And to me, like I made $0 that day. But yeah, so basically that day, in the day where I won $0, I felt like I was the most successful poker player in the world. And my eyes at that moment is getting the recognition from people that I really respected to also respect me as a poker player. And that's when I realized that I didn't play poker for the money. I play poker for the love of the game, which is why... I've always been known as a person who has what we call in the industry FPS, so fancy play syndrome. Where Wait, I don't, fancy play syndrome? Yeah, so basically what it means is that you always win it the hard way. You always try to find the most meta way to play against your opponent. You always try to outplay your opponent. There was a period of time where um, I played like 10% of my hands blind without looking at my cards. I'm because... totally picturing like a James Bond scene here. Like everyone in gowns around the table, like 
That's what's going through my head as you're, as you're telling me this. Like, this is the nice. gameplay I'm seeing in my head. All right. That's what I'm going to do when I make a movie one day about my <laughs> poker journey, my failed poker journey. But I think that it's not really so much about, like, how successful I was as a poker player because I do not consider myself as a successful poker player at all, especially in the grand scheme of things in poker. I was nowhere close to the top, but I think poker has taught me so much that is what brought me to where I am as a business owner today. And it's so funny how the things that I did with poker and the things I do now is so polar opposite, but without one, I would not succeed another. What do you feel is like the one thing that you learn from poker that you're able to take into lashing and everything else? Decision-making. I think I talk about this quite a lot. I think as a business owner, your biggest skills that you need to refine is decision-making. You don't have to be the best accountant. You don't have to be the best graphic designer. You don't have to even be the best lash artist, but you absolutely have to be the best decision maker if you want to grow and scale your business. At the end of the day, business is just a series of decision making and having good judgment and making those decisions. It's something I learned in poker and make them relatively quick as well. Uh, so that, you know, diff the difference between a successful entrepreneur and a failed entrepreneur often is a difference of 10% of better decisions, 5% of better decision. Because if you are going to make decisions, that's the thing with decision is that you don't aim to make 100% right decision, just like in poker. You just want to be right more often than others. And you want to be right more often than you're wrong. And that's all it is, right? So that's definitely one of the things. And then the next thing it's going to be um, taking risk. And obviously, mind you, I've never been a risk averse person. I've always liked to live on the edge. So, but I think learning how to take risks, it's also another skill that you absolutely need to refine as a business owner as well. And taking risks and making decisions go hand in hand. The more willing you are to take a risk, the faster you can make a decision. And the faster, absolutely. like if it is wrong, you can turn around and correct it or choose another decision. Yeah, for sure. So after poker making, where did you end up? So after poker, when I was little, like when kids are little, right, they think about their aspiring career, right? Kids would be like, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman, some sort of hero always. But somehow my hero has always been a business owner because my mom was, it's a very successful entrepreneur. So my dream was always to be a business person. And even in poker, I knew that poker was a pissed off for me that eventually I was going to go into business. If it's up to me to choose, it would be a tech in tech industry and some sort of tech startup. But after poker, I guess I was just waiting for the ideas to come. And I went to the first job opportunity I've ever had, which mind you, I've never had a job before that. My first job was to be a financial advisor and I hated it. I thought numbers, people, these are the two things I love are the reason why I'm in poker in the first place. So I would love this. I realized that I hated sales. I hated selling. Most importantly, I want to highlight here is I hated selling things I didn't believe in. And I didn't, I personally, for my personal investment, I do not believe in mutual funds. And because of that reason, it was very hard for me to go and sell my clients something that I knew that there was a better option out there. Um, from learning poker and like being a good poker player, your financial investment decision tends to be on a slightly riskier, but more optimal side than others. So it's very hard for me to wrap my mind around certain financial investment decisions or options that I don't really agree with. And the ones I agree with, I had no right to sell them. So <laughs> it was a very quick career that ended very, very quickly. Like, it has the same in background in sales. It's like, 
I kept getting pushed into sales jobs, but I hated sales. And like, even when I landed as like an admin or a receptionist, they would then push me into sales because they're like, you're good at it. But I'm like, I don't like it. Like, I don't care for this. I don't care for labels. I don't care for whatever the hell it is. Unless it's something that you like try, you're passionate about, you believe in, then it comes easy. But if it's something for someone else, I'm like, please just get me out of here now. Yeah. If I could, I would like to share maybe like one like little tip that I've really learned. I think a skill also that's really important for people to have is that learn how to sell yourself because since I was a little I was very good at selling me like I was very good at selling me to my parents to get things that I want I was very good at selling me to school to get into like field trip or things that I want like for example I was in grade 10 at the time in high school and in grade 12 in my high school there was going to be a so I was in grade 9 actually in grade 12, in my high school, every year, they go on an international trip. And next year, when I'm going to be in grade 10, that year's grade 12 class was going to Japan. And Japan was the top of my bucket list. You know, I really, really wanted to go to Japan. But I am two years away from that class. Like I was going to be in that class. You know, there was no way that I was going to be able to get to that trip. So instead, I sold myself to the principal. I told the principal that, Right now, currently, I'm pretty much half a grade ahead. Like, you know, I'm in grade 10. Next year, I'll be in grade 10, but I will be doing half of grade 11 courses. So by the time I'm in grade 11, which is the year after, I will be taking a grade 12 international business class. So I would like to go to Japan, even though I'm two years younger than everybody in that class, or actually three years younger than everybody in that class. That's a different story, but I would like to go to that trip. And I sold myself to them. I sold myself telling them why I deserve that trip and why I deserve to be a part of this class that I wasn't going to be in at all. So yeah, I think that one of the really, you don't have to learn to sell anything else in this economy right now. We're in the creator's economy where everybody can productize themselves and brand themselves. The most important skill you need to learn is how to sell yourself. And that's what we do every day on Instagram on our stories uh, as a lash artist. Every single day, you're not selling lashes. You're not selling synthetic plastic. You're <laughs> selling yourself. So it's an extremely important skill to acquire, I think. Do you have any advice for people that are super shy on like, how they can get started? Okay, that's such an important question. And I just wanted to jump in and tell you that I struggled so much as a lash artist. Heck, I still struggle some days, but what's helped me troubleshoot faster was taking notes and tracking absolutely every product that I use. Every product that I used, my client's lash conditions, when she came in, my environment, and this is why we created Lash Assist Pro. I outgrew the cue card box. My cue card box was overflowing and I was losing notes. So we created Lashless Pro to be a system that you can use to organize all your clients' notes, remember little timbits about them, and troubleshoot faster. Yes, it's digital consultation forms and waivers, which is huge in today's day and age, but it's also so much more than that. And you can try it out absolutely free, no commitments for 30 days by using the code Lash Pro. Let's jump back in better selling themselves? Hmm. So I think that most people would associate shy people as introverts. Would you agree? Yeah, I would say so. Right? Okay. Yes. Shy, introverted, but also like I'm an introvert, but Mm. like I don't, yes. Okay. Shy, introverted. Yes. Associated. You're right. That's a very general statement. <laughs> I totally agree because I don't, you know, we really shouldn't put blanketed statement on like 
human, which are all completely unique. But I think in general, what I've read is that studies have shown introverts are actually, or shy introverts, are actually way better salespeople than an extrovert. And the reason why is because introverts are more capable of being empathetic. And the greatest communicator are those who listens well. An introvert actually has that innate ability to listen better than most people. So because of that reason, once you learn and hone into your introvertness, you actually are capable of being better salespeople because extroverts sometimes can be more, I guess, distracted by like their surrounding and everything that excites them, right? But there are quite a few books actually to first overcome shyness. And to show up on camera more. And there are books that you can read called Introvert Entre- Introverted Entrepreneur, something like that. I might be getting the wrong name wrong completely. But it teaches you how to get out of your shell as somebody who's shy to start selling yourself, right? Um, the next thing I want to say is that everything humans do is a practice. It's a repetition and everything you do, it's like a muscle that you can build on top of each other. Like learning like exercising, everything is just a series of repetition until you master it. So because of that reason, I think that, you know, the best way to do it is just by trying first. And if you're shy, you can try to record yourself first so that it's not a live event, right? So you can record, retake, do it as many times as you until you feel comfortable. And the next thing is to prepare. It's like that whole saying where, you know, Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. It's kind of like that. And even now, for me, somebody who wings it, like I am the queen of improvision, I find that my results are much, much better when I prepare. Even if that's with a sticky note on my computer that has a talking point, depends on who you are, you could want a complete script. And then there are, what do you call it, teleprompting apps that you can use on your phone while you record so that you don't at least fluster what you want to say. You can be more concise with your thoughts or you can do bullet points, which is like me. I like to do bullet points. And then the next, the last thing is just put yourself out there and try. Like, you know, set some sort of doable and reachable goal for yourself. If you're so uncomfortable with it, maybe try showing up once a week, right? On your social media. As you get more and more comfortable, you can slowly build up that cadence. Just like an athlete, there's no difference. It's the exact same thing. It's like practice makes perfect. Like when you start out, you're not going to be the greatest at it. But like think back to like when we were kids and we started walking, we fell over a hundred times, but that didn't stop us from doing it again. And like when you pick up a new sport, just because you don't, you're not great at something doesn't mean you can't learn to do it. When I first was a kid and I started playing baseball, I ran in the other direction. I did not know what to do when I hit the ball. I ran from home to third. I was in grade one. I couldn't throw the ball. I was so mad at my dad for putting me in this sport that I did not want to play. And he did not let me quit. And he made me spend like three days a week on the baseball field playing catch with him. It was so hot. I just, I like, I hated it for the first couple of years. And then I got better and then I got great. And then I played rep and like, you get better the more work you put into it. Right. But you have to be okay with being bad at it first and just building on that. That's amazing. Yeah. And do you still play? I uh, know I played like last summer, but like, no, I, as soon as I hit high school, I was like, I'd rather hang out with my friends. I don't want to miss out <laughs> the stuff they're doing after school. And it was bad. Like if I played one more year, I would have had a scholarship and I regret it now, but I'm just like, eh, at least yeah. I had fun. It's all good. Different priorities. That's know? it. I just want to chill and drink with my friends. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned a teleprompting app. Have you played with one that you've liked? Yeah, there is one. I don't have it. Like it's, it's one on Apple Store. It's twenty nine ninety nine. It's called Smart Something. 
but it's like a teleprompter app that I use for all the speeches that I've been doing lately in these conferences. So I'm, I'm kind of a procrastinator. So I usually just film like the day before is due and I take one take and I can't take too many takes without the time. I still have to edit. So the teleprompter app has been super, super helpful. And it's actually recommended to me by one of our Geek Squad member, which is our ambassador. She's the one that brought it up. So I think it's like smart view or something like that. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm something seeing, like that. I'm seeing the smart ad in my head somebody. on Instagram. Smart and I couldn't somebody. even tell that you were reading, like when you were doing your conference and stuff, I could not tell that you were reading off of anything. So that's neat. <laughs> well, so you went from poker to sales, which you hated. How did yeah. you get into lashing? So I got my lashes done probably like six years ago now in Taiwan for the first time. And it was life-changing because I was like, I think this is everybody's story. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this part of the story. <laughs> but after I went back to Toronto, I had then went to get my lashes done one more time. And the person who did my lashes at the time was telling me how you can make a career out of this and how you can learn to do this. And I've always been really, really meticulous with the things I do, which is very surprising because I'm also the clumsiest person. Uh, my life is full of irony. It's just, I'm a big oxymoron, but I really enjoy very detailed things. And I was like, hmm, maybe I'll be good at this. And at the time, I had, a, I had a spare bedroom in my condo. And I was like, okay, I should probably use do something with it. And this would let me build up some of my business skills so that I can eventually land on that it idea and run with it and bring all these business skills that I've brought along the way to become a better business owner. So that's kind of how I ended up in lashing. And then immediately I took a course with Leah actually. And then that's like the start of my career. But I have to say that like, you know, I'm not exactly sure if lashes is what I'm passionate about. It's because I like to think of UA as a company, as an education company that's masquerading in a beauty supply company. So what mm. I'm genuinely passionate about is learning and teaching and sharing those knowledge. And UA slowly grew into a platform that allowed me to do that. Because I think if it's just lashing for me, I'm not sure if I would still be here right now. Yeah, you yeah. got in and out of lashes real quick. Yeah, like, and you were good at it too. Like you were great and you were teaching and I was just as, like as fast as you started teaching, you were out and you're like, okay, I'm done. I'm just going to do supplies and education now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think for me, like lashing allow me to get one step closer to what I actually like, which is learning and teaching. And then learning and teaching allow me to build a platform to get to even one step closer to what I really want is learning and teaching with and sharing with everyone in the lash industry. So I really think that I hope you have done a really, really set a really good example to show people that there's an abundance of education and knowledge in the industry. And that the best way to grow is to by sharing these knowledge. I feel like the Canadian lash industry is so small. Like everybody knows each other because I'm like, Leah did my lashes even before I started lashing. And then I trained with her as well. And wow. then Michelle from Authentic Artistry trained with you. Yeah. And I remember the one thing before I really knew you, the one thing that I knew about you was that you were great at explaining things in a way that no other instructor was doing at a time. And you had this like analogy about like, and I hadn't seen the, I haven't seen you actually do it or say it, but the description of the analogy was when you're teaching rapping, it was something about a clip or, or like closing on something. And like, I don't even know what the analogy was, but just with the, the knowledge that was floating around, I was able to figure it out and get my rapping to work. 
<laughs> yeah, I think I always loved like analogy. I think analogy is one of the best way to teach. I think, you know, if you look at a lot of Albert Einstein or Richard Feynman, physicists and th- people like that, they would all tell you that to truly understand something is to be able to explain it plainly, right? If you can't explain it plainly, you don't really understand it. That's why I try to use, I've always been kind of the spokesperson to go online and tell people on your social media to stop using jargons, to stop using terminology that means nothing to your clients. A good example is I once did, I wanted to do this like video that I thought would be really funny to give people a perspective of what lash artists, how lash artists view the world and how like a lash client views the world. And I will prompt different words and ask them to, you know, in their own words, explain to me what that word means to them. So an example would be isolation to a lash artist would be uh, sorting one lash out of, you know, your lash line and not touching other lashes or something. But for a client, isolation, uh, when I ask my graphic designer, she's like, I think of myself sitting in an island. Like, did you make this video? Not, no. Okay, do it, please. Yeah. (laughs) But I think that like, one of the things that I've learned is that like, this is why kids learn so well, right? It's because kids don't complicate things. They keep it really, really simple. And they start with first principle. And then that's it. Like, so for a good educator, and I think a good teacher, one of the things that would make you stand out as a good educator is somebody who really thinks about how to communicate knowledge, right? So if you had to read any book to start off as a teacher or an educator, is to read a communication book, right? To first understand how communication works, how do people reciprocate communication? And then once you've done that, I think no matter what you teach, you're going to find an easier time to do it and more effective as well. Okay. So let's have you break this down for us. Why is retention such a mystery? Like why do so many new lash artists struggle with adhesive like and making okay. it work for them? That's so funny because I think this is such a good question to ask at this point because I was just talking about how simplifying things and making information easy to understand. And retention is one of those things that I think has been confused and overcomplicated by a lot of people. First of all, it's because of lack of knowledge and lack of information. Our lash industry is extremely young. So, you know, there is extremely young and also extremely closed right? Lash artists often only interact with other lash artists. You don't really see lash artists interacting with chemists or Mm -hmm. interacting with accountants or business owners. They often stay in their own bubble. And that unfortunately has the effect of a echo chamber, right? So that's when, you know, the information just bounces off the wall and just keep rotating within the space. And we don't really have a way to fact check them. So there's a lot of theories of a lot of smart people coming up, but no way to fact check them or, you know, to validate them. With more and more time going on, there's more and more like nerdy and curious people are asking questions, right? Because what is science? Science, it's not when you have a hypothesis or theory, you go and find ways to prove it right. True science is when you have a theory and you go and find a way in every way possible to prove it wrong. Oh, That's I didn't know that. Of science. Yeah, it's called fallibilism, right? So everything, good science, every good piece of science and knowledge is fallible. So what that means is that it's possible for it to be wrong. If something is not fallible, 
then it's unlikely that it's true. So by saying something like, "Oh, you know, this is the way it is," for example, you can apply that same explanation to everything. If you can apply one explanation to every single question. How can that be the right question, right? So I'm feeling bad uh, for scientists right now that are like going through life just de- like doubting everything in their existence. That's a really <laughs> sad way to live. Or if you're a truth seeker, that would be the most exciting way to live, right? So all about perspective. But I think that for us in adhesive, it's the one thing in our industry that it's actually evolved around science, right? And it's because of that. We are not scientists. I'm not a scientist. Matter of fact, I know so little about science that a grade eight student would know more about science than I do. Excuse me. <laughs> It's okay. Bless you. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, like a grade eight student would know more about science than I do. So when it comes to something like this, all we have is just theories that everyone is going off. So because of that, number one, we have now crowded the space with a lot of different theories and a lot of different information. Now, human has a tendency, is a bias that we always have. It's called confirmation bias. So that's when you believe in something and you will go out there and look for evidence to prove the things that you believe in. So one of the best ways to see this is, you know, if you drive a Toyota, you're gonna go on the street and you're gonna be like, there's way more Toyota on the streets than any other cars. Mm-hmm. But if you ask a Honda like car driver, he's gonna be like, "Uh-uh, no, you're not right. Actually, there's way more Honda out there on the streets." So because of this reason, it's so much easier for us to kind of look for faults elsewhere instead of really understanding what is happening. So because of that, I think with this confirmation bias, wanting to believe that we're good lash artists, wanting to believe that retention. It's multifaceted and has so many moving pieces in it. It almost alleviate that pressure of us as lash artists to say that it's not our fault, it's not our problem. It's the aftercare process, it's the adhesive, it's the environment. Well, the environment does play a role, but a lot of it, it's it's so much easier to just complicate things to say that okay, I don't really understand it, so that's why my retention like. Isn't really working or sucks, and then the moment you find that one thing that works, you grab onto it and you're like, "That's it. That solved my problem. So that must be the solution to a greater retention." But instead, what I want to encourage people to do, which is why I do these free adhesive webinars, is to really understand fundamentally how does the adhesive work and what causes retention issue. By understanding this, you can come up with a theory on your own in which why your retention doesn't work, right? Because when it comes to retention, as adhesive is very simple, but the question, the answer to why you're having retention problem, that itself is multifaceted. It has so many different variables in there, right? But if we can understand how adhesive work, then I feel like hopefully by the end of this podcast. Everyone at home or in your salon listening to this, that you're able to troubleshoot your own retention problem. You know, I remember listening to an episode of Lashcast podcast, and they talked about how Tessie like never blames the client if something's going wrong. The onus is always on her, and shifting into that mindset was game changing because it's not like oh, like what did you go home and do? What did you like use? Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with that anymore. It was just like, okay, what did I do? What do I need to change in order for things to work better next time? And as soon as I started doing that, I was less stressed out. Clients were less stressed out, and like things were just working so much smoother. Mm-hmm. So that's really good of you. Yeah, to like take ownership and responsibility 
of your part of the uphold your part of the bargain, right? In this transaction, they gave you money, and it's your commitment to them that these lashes will last. Woo! Okay, that was a lot, but there is so much more, and it just keeps on getting better. Cheryl and I talked for hours. She was so incredibly generous with her time. And in part two, we dive in deeper on troubleshooting retention and learn more about the why behind Cheryl and everything Untamed Artistry stands for. For today's show notes, head on over to neilamcore.com forward slash L03. And that will have the teleprompting app and everything else that we discussed for you there. There will also be links to UA's free volume training and some of my favorite commercials from them. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified when part two of our interview with Cheryl is live. And if this interview helped you, leave us a review on iTunes. Not only does it mean so much to me, but when you leave us a review and a five-star rating, this helps other artists find the show and it helps us bring on other amazing guests